Hey everyone, and welcome to Unison Christian Church, the podcast. We exist to change our community with the life-changing truth of Jesus, elevate a culture of love and holistic growth, and serve as a family built on hope. Our desire is that today's message helps you discover fresh new ways of connecting with God. Now, here is today's message. So today, we are in week five of our sermon series of Becoming. This sermon series has gone through the second half of Exodus, uh, pretty much from, from the, uh, like God saving the people at the Red Sea. Uh, we've just been preaching through the whole rest of the book. And today, we are in what's called the Golden Calf episode. This isn't a very creative name, um, but that's what's going on. <laughs> Maybe you could call it um, idolatry, smashed tablets, and people pruning. That might be uh, an interesting, sort of funny way to talk about this. Um, But today, we'll get to talk about the darkest day in Israel's relationship with God so far. This story in Exodus has become widely known as the classic example of rebellion for all who hear about it. It has been said that Israel committed enough sin on this one day, at this one time, they committed enough sin that God would be justified in punishing them for it until the last resurrection at the end of time. Get your Bible because uh, we're going to be reading a lot today. And it's it's a lot to put, so I don't have any slides with scripture on them. Uh, But I hope you have a Bible nearby so you can can read it and follow along. um, And we'll get into it. Uh, So I'll start off today by getting back into the swing of the story uh, leading up to right before our passage starts, Exodus 32, verse 1. Before that, this is what's going on. We heard about it in the kids' message a minute ago. God gives Moses the law for all the people of Israel. They confirm the covenant with the ceremony in Exodus 24. Then God calls Moses up the mountain again because he has some more for him. The instructions for the tabernacle, which Pastor Christina preached about last week. We got to be, you know, in us reading, we got to be up on the mountain listening in to God's commands, his instructions for the tabernacle and its furnishings and for the the priesthood. You can see the genre shift in the first verse for today. We were in spoken instruction, and then we change back to narrative. We change back to a story. Our passage is a story. All throughout the previous section, you can read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Uh, Look with me at um, Exodus 30, verse 17. Many paragraphs start off this way. Exodus 30, verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, and he gave some instructions. 31, verse 12, has a similar thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, uh, 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And then our story starts, but if you look ahead to Exodus 32, verse 7, it kind of cut away from the camp of the Israelites and back up to Moses on the mountain. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down. And this was the last instruction that the Lord gave Moses on the mountain for this time. And he said it quickly. He said, get down there. Get, get right down there. The way it's, it's worded is, it's not just saying, oh yeah, go on down the mountain. He's like, you need to get down there now, Moses. There's a problem, right? Um, once God has told Moses everything, God gives him the stone tablets with his writing on them. These will serve as artifacts of the covenant for Israel. This is 
our representation of that, right? This is the, the documents that prove the agreement between God and his people. They say God has kept his half of the agreement. He's saved them and he's loved them and they should keep their half by um, you know, working through the, the guidelines for their relationship together. So the tablets are a very big deal. They'll serve as artifacts for the covenant, right? Logically, you know, once Moses receives the tablets and is going down the mountains, uh, he would have gone down the mountain with the rest of the instructions and began to implement them. The story would flow really nicely if we just cut out Exodus 32 through 34. If we got the instructions for the Sabbath and Moses getting the tablets and then flip two pages, it's two pages in my Bible, and then Moses assembled in Exodus 35. He assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, and he shared the instructions, and then they carried them out. So God gave the instructions, and before they were carried out, that's where we have our passage for today. Of course, it's an interruption to regular programming for breaking news, where Israel failed and rebelled spectacularly. It's hard to imagine a worse case of rebellion in all of history. And anyway, just a side note here. Pain and struggle makes the joy of peace that much sweeter, doesn't it? If we thought of just cutting out this, this part where they messed up and God forgave them and God restored the, uh, the tablets, reiterating the covenant between them, if we just cut that out, we wouldn't have the, uh, this to thank God for. So it's a, it's a look at pain and a look at trouble that doesn't come naturally to me, and I'm sure it doesn't come naturally to many of you. When you're brought to a situation that seems impossible or too much to bear, it's terrible. It may feel like it will never end. Or you might wonder if even God is able to fix it or to make it right. And then one day, the sun rises, and you think, that's behind me. Maybe the Lord's brought you through it, or you're, you're through the pain, or you're through that time of, of testing or trouble. You're able to thank God in a new way. His deliverance is more special when there's something uh, right behind you that he saved you from. His deliverance is that much better when you have something like this to thank him for. Now that we've sort of situated ourselves in the grand narrative of Exodus, um, but I must talk about one element that we can see woven through this section of Exodus uh, and through the rest of the Old Testament, and it is this. It's one sentence. God gets all the credit for saving the people of Israel. No one else. God gets it all. Let's jump back to Exodus 20, verse 2, where it's the first time that God makes this claim. Um, uh, what does he say? Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's almost saying, it's saying, because this is true, listen to me. Because I brought you out of Egypt, here's why you need to obey. This is the first time we see him evoke his saving power of them as a requirement for their obedience. Since he saved them, they must listen and obey. We've talked before in this series about how God is fulfilling his covenant with Abraham by rescuing the descendants of Abraham from slavery in Egypt. He holds up his end of the bargain. God invokes his covenant name in this declaration. His covenant name, that's a, a special, specific detail that's really important 
uh, to understand for the Old Testament. In my Bible, they have uh, the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, but they're kind of a smaller font. That is uh, whenever the, the word Lord is representing this covenant name of God, this Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Uh, we typically pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, and this is the covenant name of God revealed to Moses back in Exodus uh, 3, verse 14. Back when uh, God called Moses to the burning bush and said, I am the Lord. I am has, res- has sent me to rescue the people. We typically, like I said, pronounce it Yahweh, but being completely sure of its pronunciation is lost to history. The Israelites decided it was too holy to speak his name, so whenever it came up, instead of saying his name, they would just say their word for Lord, which, if you're interested, it's Adonai. Adonai. Point is, the God of the universe has a name. He showed himself to creation, and he in himself, really, he, God is above gender, right? It's just an easy way to express myself in English. God is used uh, with feminine words in the Old Testament to say God is like a mother hen who guards her chicks. Um, I think that's really cool. Since God, since Yahweh, saved the slaves from Egypt and calling them his own, he has now started to make them into who they are. And this series has been following the story of their becoming of his people. Like you'd expect, it includes this failure. We see this reminder of God's saving of Israel uh, from Egypt all over the Old Testament. He brought them out, and he gets the credit. Now we've set the scene, right? We can finally look at our section in Exodus 32. We'll look one verse ahead of where it starts in Exodus 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the fingers of Finger of God. This again, it's, it's the, the document that seals the agreement. It's written with the fingers of God himself. Uh, they signify his commitment to staying with them and their uh, requirement to obey, his end and their end of the agreement. And now we can read Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. I'll sort of read sections and then I'll talk about, I'll stop when I need to. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and I'll stop there. The Israelites ask for gods to go before them. They broke the second commandment as well as the first. I'd say that it's more breaking the second commandment than it is the first, but certainly their, their idolatry breaks both. It's not that they're worshiping you know, in apostasy. They're turning away from Yahweh to some other god, though it's possible. I think it's better to understand that they're worshiping God in an, uh, an unsanctioned way. Their first problem is that they aren't thinking about who gets the credit for bringing them out. 
of Egypt. They say, this man, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, actually, God brought them out of Egypt. He certainly brought them, you know, Moses was, is integral in this process, but Moses didn't split the Red Sea. He didn't make a wall of water on either side. Uh, he made them happen because God gave him the power, gave him the authority and the leadership ability to, to do it. God gets the credit for saving them, not Moses, not anyone else. So that was their first problem. They weren't giving him the proper credit for their salvation. The way it's worded, it says, this fellow Moses, you know, we don't know what's happened to him. This is worded in a rude or unfamiliar way. This is, this is a rude way of referring to Moses, as if they forgot all he had already done for them in, in such a short time. They had asked for a mediator. We've talked about this uh, over the past few weeks, too. Um, God said, have all the people prepare themselves and come before me. And the people said, no, we're afraid. Moses, you go. And that was okay. Moses went. God told him the law. And then Moses was tasked with bringing it before the people. They asked for a mediator, and God gave it to them. God gave them the mediator, Moses. He was the one who would go between Israel and God. Since after all, that guy, what, what was his name again? Mo, Moses? Oh yeah, Moses. He, he must be dead. Make us someone else. Make us another way to keep track of what, what God's doing. Certainly, God's, God's, lowercase g, have been around since the fall had happened. People thought they were doing favors for these more powerful beings when they worshipped them. Maybe they made them food, which smelled good, or took care of their image in the world or gave them gifts or did acts of service um, in their honor. People thought they were doing favors for these higher beings. In the ancient religions of Egypt and the land of Canaan, cows, bulls, calves, these things, this, this animal, young calf or young bull, it could have meant several very different things. Israelites, while still slaves in Egypt, would certainly have participated in the local religions while they were in Egypt. There is an Egyptian god whose form is a bull. His name is Apis. And um, some people think that this is referring to that, uh, that they were giving a different god credit. But I think, and I'll explain more why, but I think it was certainly the second option. Not certainly. I think it is the second option. <laughs> Um, in Canaanite religion, that's the land of Canaan, the promised land before Israel was, uh, was occupying it, gods were thought to ride around on calves, on young bulls, that you know, this was the footrest of the god. Um, and in fact, this idol may have been so offensive for the very reason that it is a confusion with a Canaanite god named Baal. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that Baal is the constant enemy of God for the worship of Israel. It spans across the whole Old Testament. God gets confused with Baal quite a bit. Baal rode around on a young bull. I'm not sure. If you're interested, ask me because it's fascinating. I could show you a picture that it didn't seem like it could fit. Um, but it, it's really cool to look at, to think about. Um, so, while it's unclear what exactly the Israelites thought they were doing with this, this statue, whether they were worshiping a foreign god or worshiping God in an unsanctioned way or they were worshiping a representation of Yahweh, it's possible all of them thought different levels of these things, right? 
The point is, the story is presented as the direct opposite of the purpose for the tabernacle that we heard about last week in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. In that story, God told Moses to take up an offering of gold, golden earrings, and other things, and make up a dwelling for him so he could dwell among his people. Now, in Exodus 32, when Moses is long gone, who knows, what was his name? That guy, Moses... Now, the people ask Aaron to make a representation of God. They take up an offering. They form the idol, which we'll read more in a minute. And then they participate in a celebration of a new covenant with this other God, this other way of looking at God. They weren't, I would say, they weren't committing apostasy against God. They weren't totally turning away from Yahweh and saying, oh, these, this you know, a little wooden calf that's covered in gold. This little thing is what saved us. Uh, it's worded, it looks like it's worded that way, but I think that's not really what's going on. Uh, this is clear from verse 5, right? And now I'll read verses 4 and 5. Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5. Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. In my Bible, that's the the covenant name for God. The, The festival is to Yahweh. The festival is not to someone else. So at least Aaron was returning to a previous way of doing things. Maybe he was just appeasing the people Uh, It's hard to determine what his intentions were um, and how much credit he really deserves, right? Um, But the point is that uh, this is a festival for Yahweh. I don't think it's apostasy. This is still an unsanctioned celebration, but in Aaron's defense, it isn't full-blown return to worshiping a different god. It is unclear whether the people got that or not, though. So Aaron commands... Then he forms, and then they celebrate. I'll read that. Verse 6. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. When Moses was gone, the people of Israel became troubled and lost their faith. They wanted a way to watch and see what God was doing without listening to his precise rule against it. Our story looks just like a pagan ceremony of a new covenant and celebration in worship of a foreign God. It looks just like it. Israel returned to what was familiar to them. Before God saved them, they went back to the way they used to do things. They hadn't forsaken their ideas about gods and other heavenly beings yet which is a very interesting discussion. Again, if you're willing to have it with me, I'd love to. But they hadn't forsaken those ideas yet. It's reasonable to expect that to take time. To have, an, to have one God say, I am the only God that there is, and you need to worship me. This, this is mind-breaking. This, this changes everything for the people of that time. It would have been world-changing knowledge to come to change everything you've ever believed about the divine world, the divine realm, about God himself. But they returned to what they knew. It's reasonable to expect this to take 
time. But they walked right, they, they were going, building, getting a lot of progress, and then they turned 180 and went precisely the opposite way. They had seen God celebrated this way their entire lives, and now they despaired of the messenger with the God who saved them. And all Israel chose to rebel in the worst conceivable way. This is the equivalent of cheating on the wedding night, sneaking out of the honeymoon suite. It's hard to imagine a worse rebellion. The brazen and ridiculous choice that they made certainly merited God's harsh and swift judgment, which we'll talk about yet today. But we serve a God of mercy, a God who listens to prayer, who might just change his mind. Verse 4 goes out of its way to say that Aaron used his hands to form the image. Let's read it again, right? Uh, He made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Aaron's hand on a tool making the shape of this thing. That sets us up for the world's lamest excuse, right? Uh, When Aaron tries to defend himself later. Once Israel turned away from the way God asked them to be, and they started to go their own way, they continued down the path of worshiping the way it used to be. With indulging in revelry, that's the end of verse 6. I'll leave it a little ambiguous what is meant there, but it's certainly rated R. Uh, there's a TV show called Drake and Josh, and I loved it. It's, a, it's like a kid's sitcom. Um, it formed my sense of humor, and I quote it in my head to this day. There's one episode where the, the brothers, their stepbrothers who are you know, unlikely friends, right? Uh, they accidentally start a bed and breakfast in their parents' house while their parents are away on vacation. And Candace is here. She remembers it, right? Um, you know, as the episode wears on, you see they're like, we can make a ton of money. Easy. All we have to do is put up some people. Turns out their house just gets packed completely, right? Uh, they have 50 people running around. There's partiers and, you know, guys in togas. And it's, it's every, you know, every sitcom trope you can think of. Their, their house is getting destroyed, then their parents see the coverage of this, uh, of this, you know, this party that's happening in their own house. Their parents see it on TV while they're away on vacation. They're like, that couch looks familiar. I swear, I've seen that couch before. And it, they don't realize it's their house, right? So they come home and it, it's a big mess. The wrong has been committed. Everything has gone awry. Everything is, everything is broken. <laughs> and now what? Now what? The people are, you know, having their celebration to God in the, I'm, I'm, I've told that whole story, one, to say I love that show, right? But two, <laughs> to say that you can see once all the wrong is committed, now what? Now what? Now we can read where Moses convinces God to relent. I'll read uh, verse 7 through um, until I stop. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. If Pastor Chase were preaching about this, he would talk about that scene in The Lion King where Simba's still young and he wakes up early in the morning and his mom says to Mufasa, I can't remember the mom's name, she says, I think your son is awake. And Mufasa says, 
Before sunrise, he's your son, right? So they're distancing themselves from the responsibility of getting up. You know, it's a joke. It's a funny story. But this is exactly what God's doing here. He, we heard him claim, I am the God who brought you up. I've done it. I get, not me. Like, God gets all the credit, right? Um, and then he says, your people whom you brought, these, this wicked and stiff-necked people which you brought out of Egypt, They've messed up. You need to get down there. Um, God is not in so light of a mood as Mufasa. God has separated himself from the people. He reverses that claim we've seen uh, in the theme that we've we've talked about throughout Exodus. Instead, they're Moses' people. They've turned away quickly since the last time they saw Moses when they confirmed the covenant in Exodus 24. Think of it like like a marriage ceremony for us, right? They... They had the ceremony. They've gone through all of the, uh, the reception and they've looked at the gifts and they, you know, they're home. And then they chose to slip out and go do something else. God told Moses, all right, back up and let me do what I have to do, right? This is uh, verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God offers to start all over with Moses, wiping out the idolatrous Israelites who blatantly rebelled against God's command. But, verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. I'm going to read through verse 14 now. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Jacob, Israel, right? Jacob changed, God changed his name to Israel. Remember your servants, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom you swore, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I have promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. We see Moses do this a ton of times through, during the wilderness wanderings in the Bible. Moses is a passionate intercessor. He's willing to ask ridiculous things on behalf of the people that God called him to lead. He brings up God's reputation, uh, reminding him that he would look bad to the Egyptians if he just killed off all his people. And anyway, I think the, the point that shines brighter, God's covenant is with Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel. God's covenant is with them, to deliver them to the promised land where their inheritance will be forever. This is why God made a covenant with Israel at all, so that he could continue to fulfill his end of the bargain with Abraham and his sons. Moses sought the favor of God. It appeared that God was about to wipe out all the people, and they deserved it. Moses thought it would be best for a different thing to happen than that, so he asked God to change it. I wonder what, would sh- uh, what shape our prayers would take if we had this view of the world. Moses asked 
asked God to relent. He said, yeah, it could go that way, right? Moses is a descendant of Israel. God could choose to start over with him, and he wouldn't be, you know, rejecting this covenant that he's made. It could work that way, but Moses said, God, can you do it this way instead? And then it worked. And then God changed his mind. Verse 14, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. When I think of the mercy of God, I think of myself about to stomp on an ant, right? Like I pick up my foot and it's on its way down and I'm like, wait, I could squash this ant. Maybe I'll choose not to. That's what mercy is. That's what mercy is. It's turning from the judgment you deserve. I, I don't think we should just kill ants. Please don't do that. Uh, but the point is that uh, God is turning away from the judgment that the people deserve um, and relenting. He's changing his mind, right? Uh, I'm reminded of that verse. It's near the end of James. It's uh, James verse, chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, The prayer of a righteous man avails much. There might be a better way to say that, but I, I learned it in New King James when I was a little kid. And I just, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is not to say that being righteous and praying is equivalent to stumbling across a genie. Uh, I think we all know it doesn't work like that. The righteous person who prays observes the situation in which the brokenness of the world is in view clearly. They see it and they think, God, can you change that? That's the kind of thought we're going for. Where we see the brokenness of the world, yeah, it could work this way, but God, can you change that? The Lord relented and didn't give them what they deserve. This doesn't free the people from discipline. Uh, a modern example might be that instead of a parent kicking out a child, you know, disowning a child, instead they choose to ground them. Being grounded would still be no fun, but it's certainly much better than the other option, uh, complete you know, cutting off. Moses says to God, let me deal with them. That's our next movement in this story, uh, verses 15 through 29. Moses marches down with the tablets that God gave him. Right, He's carrying the tablets in his hand, and this is a nice way to think about it. Um, you know, it's pretty and we can display it, but the Bible says something differently. It says it was written on both sides, um, not just the front, but it's not important. Um, Moses goes down with God's blessing on him. He's carrying the tablets of the covenant. This verse says that it's God's work and as clear as possible. That's verse uh, 15. I'll read uh, 15 through 18. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He chucked them at the ground and destroyed them. He comes upon that festival, which Aaron had declared to be for the Lord. It seems like it had a lot more going on than that, right? 
uh, and Moses destroyed the binding document between God and Israel. This, this doesn't work. You can't have a covenant without a document binding between the two parties. It will have to be corrected. He threw the tablets out of his hand in order to break them. He wanted them to be broken. The interesting thing about this part is that God seems to have, Moses seems to have God's blessing. God doesn't seem to mind uh, whenever we uh, look at all the things that are about to happen, right? Uh, I'll read verse 20. Moses took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What do these people do to you, that you led them into such a great sin? Moses dishonored the idol by wasting its value. He destroyed it and sprinkled it on the stuff they were to eat, the stuff that's fleeting, the stuff that doesn't, it's not going to last. Then he made them drink it. He dishonored the value of the idol by making it dust. And he dishonored the people who thought it was a good idea to worship God through it um, by making them drink it. Then he turned on Aaron. We, we can read Aaron's excuse here, the world's lamest excuse, right? Uh, he said to Aaron, verse 21, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord. Notice how that's not all caps. That's the, that's the word for Lord in Hebrew, Adonai. It's, it's more like sir, but it's not God's covenant name, right? That's why it's not all caps. You can look that in the, the introduction to most Bibles. We'll talk about this. Um, just how they express God's name in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, I know it's in mine. Where was I? Uh, Aaron answered, You know how prone these people are to evil. Verse 23. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Some, some uh, biblical scholars think Aaron is claiming a miracle here, but I think Aaron's dodging responsibility. When verse 4 said he used a tool to carve the shape of this thing, right? Um, I, I'm doing this, but it was, I don't know how big it was, um, Aaron's hand crafted this thing. And instead, he tries to claim this, this word that Moses, when Moses threw the tablets, it says he chucked them at the ground. Aaron is claiming that he, used, he did the same word. He chucked the gold into the fire. He just was like, whatever, you know, let me get rid of this. And then out came this idol. Must have been, I, it wasn't me. You know, who, I don't know, who was it? It's a ridiculous excuse, a ridiculous excuse. Aaron made it. <laughs> Moses saw, verse 25, that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and, be, and so had become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. All of the descendants of Levi rallied to him. They're a very important um, clan of the, the Israelites in the Old Testament. They become the priestly class, the ones who don't have an inheritance of land allotted to them. Instead, um, they'll manage the, the religious ceremonies of Israel. 
Uh, then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. All caps there for Lord. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you on this day. This doesn't sit right. Uh, looking at it just, you know, for what it looks like, it doesn't sit right with me. I hope it doesn't sit right with you. Um, Moses carried out a judgment on, assumedly, the ringleaders of Israel's idolatry. The language at the beginning of the chapter makes it seem like every single Israelite participated in this. And, and we've seen numbers don't get too attached to the exact numbers, right? But it says about a million men came out of Egypt and then they all presumably had families. So we're talking a lot of people. And 3,000 people were killed on that day. So comparing, it certainly is uh, much better than complete annihilation. Still is it's a harsh judgment uh, that, that they deserve. Uh, God's justice requires uh, that things be made right. And in this moment, this is how he declared and determined to make things right. Moses claimed to speak for God, and God didn't have a problem with it. This is a complex issue, but I think that biggest and loudest point is that Israel as a whole deserved to be wiped out. But instead, the worst offenders were removed for their rebellion. And we'll read now, that doesn't get the people off the hook, right? Verse 32, uh, 32 verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up uh, to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. This isn't to say, uh, destroy me as if I never lived. You can look at this uh, this wording throughout the Old Testament is to say, kill me, take me instead. Moses is offering himself in their place. But God declares that the guilty are the ones who shall, shall be or were killed. As for Moses, he should press on to the call that God gave him. I'm not sure I understand it. I'll read it uh, the next few verses. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Um, I won't claim that I fully understand what's going on here, but maybe God is saying, I'll hold those responsible who really, really knew that what they were doing was completely not okay. The ringleaders being punished for this sin seems to me to make sense to say these ones knew they knew what they were doing and they led others astray because god doesn't god doesn't kill aaron i don't i don't get that um i don't know if you know something let me know um but god determines that it's time for israel to go out that's what we should focus on now god says all right it's time to go uh, but he won't be going with them, and I won't read it, but it's 32 verses 33 uh, through chapter 33, verse 6. This story continues right to the next chapter. God is worried that they'll make him so angry that he loses it and destroys them. 
So maybe it's best if he just doesn't go at all. During this limbo time where they have a covenant but no document to make it official, they have the instruction but they haven't carried it out. It's a limbo and in between, a time when they're becoming God's people. During that limbo time, we can see the unique role that Moses played for the call of Israel. That's the rest of chapter 33 through the end of the verses for today. We end, it looks like in the middle of a story uh, in our English Bibles, but in most English Bibles, but really I think it's a, a solid breaking point in the narrative of the Old Testament through 33 verse 17, right? We'll cut it off right there. So that next section, 33 verses 7 through 17, we see Moses' role. They give him honor when he goes before the Lord. The Lord speaks to him face to face like a friend. We see Moses ask in verse 15, he asks God to change again, right? Before we get to that, I just want to talk a little more about Moses' role as he's called to this, this position before the people of God and before God. He's really um, like a priest. He brings the people before God. You know, he asks for forgiveness. And he brings God before the people. He teaches them what God says, what God expects of them. This is the role of the priest. And if you remember in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, I love that verse, the, those verses there. Um, God says, I will make you all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's intention is that all the people will do this thing like Moses did. Bring all the random strangers who are not Israelites. He'll bring them before God and bring God before all of them. Then we come to verse 15. God said he wouldn't accompany them, but Moses asked him to change his mind. And then God did, again, setting, up, setting us up for that last stage of becoming in Exodus, the reiteration of the covenant and the construction of God's house, because God determines that he will go with them. Even in the face of this deep and hurtful rebellion, God didn't give up on Israel, but continued to help them become who he called them to be. As we come to the end of our time today, I just want to ask you, have you rebelled against God? How have you rebelled against God? What are some ways in which you've returned to the old way of doing things? You've left God and his instructions at the altar. Do you need to repent and forsake the old way of doing things like the people of Israel needed to? Certainly, the good news that we were told is that Jesus Christ took our punishment. He gave us this lost and desperate people he gave us the right to be called the sons and daughters, the daughters and sons of God. Following him requires breaking with the patterns of this world and submitting to God's will. Do you need to repent? Don't do this slowly. Do it Wait. Don't do this quickly. Do this slowly, carefully. Think about it. And then just another question. Do you pray like Moses? Uh, with the same trajectory of mind as him. What does it look like for you to ask God to change his mind? Not to say that he will just change his mind just because you ask, right? But have you looked at the brokenness of the world and said, God, God, there's a better way. Would you do it this way? Those three new salvations that we had happen within our church body, I celebrate them. And I say this to those, those young kids and to anyone else who's interested. You know, maybe they're listening to this today or maybe not. 
but completely turn away from the way you found yourself doing things. Completely give up on the patterns of this world and submit to the Holy Spirit of God. Rest in God, depend on him, and trust him for your direction, uh, for his direction in your daily decisions and in the big paths of your life. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll talk a little more after. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for relenting and changing and not bringing disaster on your people when they deserved it. God, thank you for how you show that deliverance to us every single day, how you show that deliverance to me every single day when I walk away from your command, walk away from submission to your spirit, and I deserve to get wiped out. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving me. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of those who are listening today, that they would not just go on um, after you know, a long sermon that may have been boring toward the end or something, Lord. Would you work through their hearts and um, draw people unto you? Lord, thank you again for, uh, for bringing young kids back to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Lord. That's why we're here. Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us this story today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and believe others could benefit from hearing about us, please remember to share and subscribe to Unison Christian Church wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also catch us live at unisongr.com or on Facebook. See you next week.